Welcome to the KISS FAQ Song Stories. In this series, we'll focus on the histories of some of KISS's best and least known songs. In this episode, what might be considered one of the KISS deep cuts, the exquisite Love Her All I Can, which was released on Dress to Kill in 1975. Love Her All I Can was several years old by the time KISS recorded it, having been recorded in multiple forms by Gene Simmons and Paul Stanley's earlier band, Wicked Lester. Paul Stanley told Billboard magazine in 2009, Wicked Lester was kind of like the United Nations. You had one of everything in it. You had a Norwegian, an Italian, two Jews, and a partridge in a pear tree. It was a Doobie Brothers kind of band, where if you take a look at it, there's one of everything, but you can't quite put your finger on what it is. Eclectic is the word often used to describe them. Likewise, the band's material stylistically was all over the place. It ran the gamut, from the dark and brooding to the light and uplifting. This song, the pure pop perfection of Love Her All I Can, falls squarely into the latter category, though Gene described it as a dance track in the Nothing to Lose book. According to Paul Stanley in the 2001 Kiss Box Set liner notes, this song started off with a guitar part that was influenced or stolen, depending upon how you want to look at it, from the opening figure in I Can't Explain by The Who, and the guitar bass figure is ripped off from Open My Eyes by Naz. Of course, the 1965 Who hit features a distinctive, repetitive figure that serves not only as the introduction figure, but on the verses with underlying bass driving the melody. That song may well have been the inspiration for the similar introduction featured in the Naz song a few years later. However, for Paul's composition, the inspiration derived from the latter song is more significant. The Naz song's fuzz-toned guitar and bass provide a very obvious parallel with aspects of Paul's composition. While it was probably written earlier, the song's copyright was first registered on November the 27th, 1972, around the time Wicked Lester were completing their studio recordings. This song was performed live by Wicked Lester or Rainbow, depending on whichever band name the band was using at the time. A version was present on the currently only known surviving live recording of the band, according to Ken Sharp's Behind the Mask book. Wicked Lester's pianist, Brooke Ostrander, also suggested that this song was the band's set opener the few times that they performed live. While preparing material for his 2019 book, Backstage Pass, Paul Stanley unearthed an acoustic quarter-inch reel of Wicked Lester, dated from August the 7th, 1971. Because of the date of this recording, one may assume that this may have been a rough catalog recording, similar to Kiss's later Bell Sound studio demos prior to the band officially commencing work in the studio in November 1971. Once again, the song is present. The status of that reel is unclear, though hopefully Paul has had it preserved and transferred, and that fans will get an opportunity to hear some of the material one day. Perhaps on a definitive Wicked Deluxe Expanded Edition, Wicked Lester were working sporadically at Electric Lady Studios by January 1972. By that time, what had started out essentially as demo sessions had segued into the album sessions. Over the year, arrangements of songs were being modified and multiple overdubs being layered on the bed tracks. It was a tedious, unfocused, and convoluted process, 
no doubt partially impacted by the sporadic recording schedule. The band were taking whatever blocks of time were available at Electric Lady, having no budget of their own to really fund continuous time. They also didn't have a single perspective to approach the material with, or an adult in the room to keep the experimentation reasonable. Multiple versions of the song circulate for collectors to analyze or simply enjoy. Let's try and dig into the genesis of the song's pre-Kiss recording timeline. What is considered the earliest version of the song is also the roughest. It is likely the version featuring Stephen Coronel's guitar work. While the least refined, it is also one of the most interesting of the versions available. It includes the familiar Eight Measures of Who-like intro refrain. These chords provide the underlying guitar prior to the commencement of the vocal, as the bass and the drums join the instrumentation for four repetitions of the main riff. The first verse features paired guitar chords and Hammond organ with subdued paired vocals from Gene and Paul. Paul sings the chorus with the opening refrain chords underneath the riff chords. Lead guitar makes its first appearance during the second verse with a succinctly phrased five-note part over the money harmony, followed by a slightly longer run over the sunny harmony. A full, nicely balanced guitar solo follows over the rhythm guitar of the song's riff following the second chorus, leading into the break section. With hi-hat keeping time, mini breaks from Hammond followed by a very John Entwistle-inspired bass run and drum roll lead into the second guitar solo, which lasts for some 15 seconds before the third verse starts. Lead guitar work is then sprinkled throughout the third verse, similar to the second. Following a third repetition of the chorus, lead guitar continues for the remaining 30 seconds of the song over an additional verse and chorus, with the instrumentation repeating into a hard ending. Stephen Coronel suggested in Behind the Mask that it was his performance of this song at a showcase for epic executives at CBS Studios that led to his departure from the band. He recalled, The record company didn't like me. I think it was that damn song, Love Her All I Can. I couldn't play the lead break on that song because I never heard the song. Now I'm playing it in a showcase and I think I fucked it up. 
Part of his problem was that he didn't recall having a tape of the song to practice along to at home, and simply being unsure where to take that break section. There is clearly a difference between the execution of the two lead guitarists on that section in particular, though it is clear that Steven's initial idea was refined and not completely discarded by Ron. styles of the two are also clearly different, with Ron incorporating more string bends and vibrato than Steven's more basic staccato picking. Not surprisingly, the song evolved musically once Ron Lejack had been recruited. While much would be recycled throughout the sessions, the band and producer felt that Ron's guitar work didn't work well with some of the previously completed recordings, and it was simply easier to redo substantial parts of the song. By August 1972, the song's mix does not include the introductory refrain, and instead blasts straight into the song's verse music with lead overdubs and Paul's exclamation. <laughs> The drum track is immediately fuller in the mix, with prominent snare and woodblock for the four repetitions of the main riff, the same as the arrangement on the Coronel version. Immediately obvious is the additional percussive seasoning sprinkled throughout the track, and there's more audible cowbell. Steve's guitar solos are replaced in the same positions over the second verse, but they're mixed lower and are less prominent. However, they do remain partially audible, illustrating the layering and overdubbing utilized for the recordings in general. 15 seconds of guitar soloing leads into where the break section was removed. Instead of that break, the four repetitions of the riff, along with the backing vocal refrains, provide the bed for an additional 15 seconds of lead guitar work. Like the first version of the song, the third verse is sprinkled with light lead work and the verse is separated from the third chorus with another Paul Stanley exclamation. Following a third repetition of the chorus, lead guitar continues for the remaining 30 seconds of the song over an additional verse and chorus instrumentation repetition leading into the segue into Sweet Ophelia. This tightening of the arrangement essentially lops some 20 seconds off the song's duration. The definitive version of the song is the 2000 Universal Remix, released on the box set. Most notable on that version is the clarity and increased tempo. It marries the August 1972 mix with the intro refrain from the Coronel version. Unlike that earliest version, noticeable finger scraping is present between the 6th and 7th chords of the intro refrain. The rest of the song remains the same as the August 1972 version, though the separation is beautiful, clear, and full-sounding, as one would expect from access to the master tapes. The ending note vibrato is clearly faded over the first strikes of the drums, where the segue to Sweet Ophelia would have commenced, even though the track order on the fully remastered disc leads into When the Bells Ring. <laughs> 
it's a bit of a curiosity. By the time that KISS were recording Dress to Kill, they were under pressure to deliver product to Casablanca Records to release. While some songs were written by Gene and Paul in the mornings and recorded in the afternoon, both dug into their back catalogs to complete the album as quickly as possible. Paul recalls, Some songs Gene and I wrote in the morning and Peter and Ace came in in the afternoon to record. We had very few leftovers, just she and Love Her All I Can, so we had little choice. We also hadn't written anything on the road. When faced with the choice of noodling on our guitars or nailing a woman from the chicken coop, it was no contest. In Paul's case, particularly with Neil Bogart having taken the production helm, this song may have been all too an obvious choice. However, it should also be noted that other Wicked Lester material had previously been considered for Kiss albums, such as Keep Me Waiting, which was rejected, and Going Blind, which was used on Hotter Than Hell. In Nothing to Lose, Gene suggested that he had pushed for the inclusion of the two leftover songs, commenting that he felt they were good songs and belonged on a Kiss record because they were based on riffs. However, one must wonder whether their inclusion and release drew the attention of someone at CBS Records who then realized that they had unreleased recordings in their library. It's not as if some Wicked Lester was that far separated from their new band. Kiss had performed this song, Simple Type, and Keep Me Waiting at their very first gig at the Coventry on January the 30th, 1973. By that measure, it was already part of the band's DNA, though unlike She, the song had not featured in their live set following the release of the first album. Neil's production background was firmly entrenched in the bubblegum pop singles of the 1960s, while president at Cameo Parkway and later Buddha Records, and this song was representative of the catchy and poppy material of that genre. However, it is also very representative of some of the material that young Stanley Eisen had been writing. Keep in mind Let Me Know being recorded for the debut album. Recording sheets suggest that KISS recorded their version of Love Her All I Can during two sessions in Studio B at Electric Lady Studios on February the 26th and 27th, 1975. In terms of the arrangement, very little changed for the KISS version. Gene and Paul's vocals were more firmly rooted in a rock delivery, were less atmospheric, and in the case of Paul, he was singing more from his gut. Ace's lead work wouldn't be present until the solo section, and then his take was significantly different than that of the previous two guitarists. Even Peter got a mini drum break section, reminiscent to that of the earliest version, but it was better placed positionally within the song's structure. Other than that change, there's only the ending figure that is really completely different musically. Also recounted in an interview with Ken Sharp in Nothing to Lose is Planet's guitarist Binky Phillips' visit to the studio during the sessions. He told Ken, I only heard it in 10 to 20 second chunks while the engineer was tweaking the EQ or something, but it sounded live in the studio hot and more urgent than anything on their first two albums, and the chords and the hook were twisted and original. When the band headed out on tour to support the album in March 1975, Love Her All I Can was not one of the songs known to have been performed from the album. 
In fact, there is currently no known confirmed performance of the song by KISS after that first show in 1973. While the song was listed on a handwritten set list from the club era, that's not concrete evidence of it surviving into the latter part of 1973, though it could possibly have been among the songs recorded for producer consideration during the Bell Sound Studio sessions. However, while KISS ignored the song for many years, other bands didn't. Gene and Paul were invited to perform with Anthrax on their cover of the song in 1993 for their Black Lodge EP. The vocals were recorded on the evening of December the 22nd, 1992, at El Dorado Studios in North Hollywood. Anthrax vocalist John Bush sang the chorus with Gene and Paul handling the verses. Soon, inspired by the tributes honoring their musical legacy, KISS did start exploring parts of their back catalogue. Oddly, Love Her All I Can wasn't an obvious choice for inclusion in the KISS convention tour of 1995 setlist. After partial attempts in Australia in February, it was only sporadically attempted during the main US lag during the summer. The song was a welcome return to the live set during the 2004 Rock the Nation tour, and it was included on the live DVD from that tour. It's what's called Lover All I Can!
would also appear in the set electrically for the next few years, until the band implemented meet-and-greet acoustic mini-sets. Since then, it has mainly been performed during the KISS Cruise shows, along with other deep cuts. 